0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inders, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Felix Zimmermann, the author of Virtuelle Wirklichkeiten, Atmosphärisches Vergangenheitserleben im digitalen Spiel, or the English title, Virtual Reality's Atmospheric Experiences of the Past in Digital Games from 2023. The publisher is Büchner. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode with your friends. Atmospheres are everywhere, at the workplace, in the soccer stadium, in front of the crackling fireplace. They shape our everyday language and have become quite natural expressions of how we find ourselves in certain environments and how we feel about them. Their influence is far-reaching. Aesthetic atmospheres are closely linked to a contemporary experience oriented historical culture whose products and practices claim to establish an immediate contact with the past. So I guess let's talk about them. Felix, welcome to the show. Hi, Rudolf, and thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course, it's a pleasure. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, I'd love to. Okay, so uh, I studied history and communications in the idyllic city of Münster and in the much larger larger and louder city of Cologne. And in Cologne, I was part of the public history master's program, uh, which was newly launched this year in 2015, I think. And public history, um, to explain that briefly, is a research discipline in the field of history. And basically, It's about looking at the public mediation and communication of history and then uh, doing so also taking a look at new forms of media of historical communication that maybe have uh, received little attention in historical scholarship to date and um, in this study program i also very quickly I had the opportunity to um, deal intensively with games as a subject. And then whenever possible, I wrote my seminar papers on games. And then after my master's degree, I even received a scholarship from the University of Cologne to write a doctoral thesis on the topic of games and history. Yeah. And that took about three and a half years. And since mid 2022, uh, I've been working at the Federal Agency for Civic Education in Bonn, uh, a city just south of Cologne. And at the beginning of this year, my doctoral thesis was finally published.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it's quite a book, really. Astonishing. I'm glad that we can talk about it today. But before, of course, we have to check out uh, your Ludo Street credibility. So please tell us, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now?
1: Okay, so yeah, in terms of my favorite game, um, yeah, when I think about which game I have the fondest, nostalgic memories of, um, it's probably Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, uh, on the Super Nintendo. And when I think about the game, I still love the most and actually play through at least once every year. Uh, it's Gothic 2, the role-playing game from the German developer, um, Piranha Bytes. In my opinion, no other role-playing game has come close to the world building an atmosphere, uh, to stay on the topic of that game. Um, yeah, and at the moment, I'm playing Return of the Obra Din, And that's, you know, kind of a mystery detective game. Very fresh gaming experience. Uh, and I also love the art design and the soundtrack. So, uh, yeah, ca- can highly recommend. Hmm.
0: Felix, I'd like to start our conversation about the book by asking you what original considerations, thoughts, and ideas finally led you to this astonishing finished project.
1: Yeah, so um, I have already roughly uh, dealt with this topic as part of my uh, master's thesis. And then in my dissertation, I'm taking this topic up again. Uh, The basic observation was, first of all, that generally when we talk about games we very very often talk about the atmospheres of these games we say that this or that game is particularly atmospheric and therefore maybe even particularly good and some review sites even explicitly list atmosphere in their rating systems but i mean what atmosphere means exactly uh, what we mean by that uh, i think it's never really explained or oftentimes not explained. Somehow, I think it's just assumed that we should all know what atmosphere means. And I think this observation can also be applied, you know, to, to a wider society. Atmospheres are really omnipresent. In soccer stadiums, for example, you have this constant talk about the atmosphere created by the fans, or you, you have certain cities I don't know, maybe like Berlin, people say that the city has a, s- a certain atmosphere. Or, I mean, there are even concepts that are specifically focused on atmosphere. For example, the, the Danish concept of, of hygge, this idea of coziness and warmth, basically describes a form of atmosphere, you know, just to to name a few examples. So for me, the first question was what this pervasiveness, you could say, of, of the concept of atmosphere means for games so what exactly do we mean by atmospheres in these contexts and how does that shape the production and reception of games however um yeah because of my background in history i mean i talked about that my my focus is not just on any games but on those that have um historical settings and i mean i think This fits very well because games like Assassin's Creed, for example, with its cityscapes and large open worlds, they are oftentimes negotiated based on their atmospheres.
0: Yeah, and so that's
1: what I wanted to um, pursue with my work.
0: Well, as you have mentioned, well, you are using... In-depth analysis of the three or of three digital games: Arno 1800 from 2019, Assassin's Creed Syndicate from 2015, and finally Dishonored from 2012. And I think, by the way, that's the only one I've really. Also played extensively, so I thought it would be only logical for our listeners to follow that roadmap, starting with Anno 1800. This is a city-building real-time strategy video game developed by Blue Byte and published by Ubisoft. Um, please tell our listeners what insights you were able to gather in the course of your analysis.
1: Yeah, so like you said, um, I analyzed Anno uh, 1800, has it Creed Syndicate, and Dishonored. So I really took three games that can roughly be assigned to a Victorian England setting. And that still differ fundamentally in terms of gameplay. So like you said, Anno 1800 is a strategy game. Assassin's Creed Syndicate is a third-person action game. And Dishonored, you could say, is basically a first-person shooter. And I wanted to compare how atmospheres are created and talked about in these three different games based on the gameplay and setting. So, to go directly to Anno 1800, the main problem with the research of atmospheres is that atmospheres are something very subjective. Atmospheres take place on, you could say, on an emotional level. And that's why I can only approach these atmospheres in an indirect way, because, of course, I can't, I can't look into the player's brains and find the atmospheres there. That's why it was especially important to draw on a lot of source material that then I could evaluate in my research. So with regard to ANU 1800, for example, um, there is this so-called ANU Union, which is basically a community initiative by Ubisoft, uh, by the publisher that you know wants to be transparent in development of ANU and involve the community. And there were a lot of development reports here that I was able to evaluate and Among them, numerous comments from players, which I also analyzed. And then of course, I also surprisingly played the game and paid attention there to techniques that are used to create atmospheres. So I think in Anno 1800, it was particularly noticeable, for example, that developers and players, as well as the press, always talked about a so-called Anno feeling. You know, like totally self-evident, as if everyone should know what that means.
0: Yeah, right. It's ridiculous, I, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And I just, you know, I just I worked out that um, we are dealing with a certain form of atmosphere that a good Anno en- uh, en- game must have. And that this atmosphere is described as an Anno feeling. And in order to create this specific Anno feeling atmosphere, there are many influencing factors that have to be right and that are used quite consciously by the developers. Just, you know, to, to give you one example, there's the so-called Wuselfaktor, uh, the German term for it, which could be roughly translated as, I don't know, hustle, bustle, factor, or something <laughs> yes. like that. Yeah. Um, the developers, they really invest an incredible amount of time in making sure that... Uh, each building and also the people walking around between the buildings have, you know, complex animations, even though you actually only ever see them as, you know, tiny figures on the screen, you, you look down onto your island. So there are only tiny figures on the screen uh, and still they invest so much time in, the, in these animations. The point here is to simulate the liveliness of the city. And also very important in this regard is the sound. Uh, that plays an important role here. And, and I, I was really impressed by how consciously it is used to create atmospheres, even though when you play the game, you usually don't notice it, uh, the, the role of the sound and how um, how uh, differentiated it is. For example, the sound adapts to how close or far away we zoom in on the action. You have in the game a so-called listener, uh, which is you know like a virtual microphone, in the game world and this virtual microphone picks up sounds in the environment and plays them depending on where you are in the game world. So if you zoom in, you can hear the people walking around or, you know, drinking at the bar. And if you zoom, zoom out, you hear more nature sounds and the the, the clashing of the waves, um, uh, surrounding the island and stuff like that. And that's just how the game world feel, fits natural. And in Arno, I think that's really crucial for the production of of Atmosphere. But of course, uh, I mean, I think that that will will be the case for everything we talk about today. There's even more to this Anno feeling than I mentioned here, um, which I explain in detail in my book.
0: Ah, the perfect marketing, perfect marketing. Um, As we say in German, ich ziehe meinen Hut. Please look that one up. So your second entry is Assassin's Creed Syndicate. This is an action-adventure video game developed by Ubisoft Quebec and also published by Ubisoft. No wonder here. Please take our listeners on the journey of discovery that you two have undertaken in this particular game world then.
1: Yeah, so Assassin's Creed Syndicate, um, uh, you could say, was a very different beast. Um, Here it was again that I tried to collect as much source material as possible for the development of the game. For example, in this case, I looked very closely at the official art book for the game, because in this art book, they talk a lot about atmosphere design. Uh, But I also listened to podcast interviews with, for example, audio designer Lydia Andrews. Uh, And I was even able to do a short interview with Marc-Alexis Côté, who was creative director of Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Mm -hmm. So um, there were some parallels, of course, to how atmospheres were created in Anno 1800. But I think what is certainly special um, about Assassin's Creed Syndicate is that it's so strongly based on a real life city, uh, 19th century London. And the developer's approach was therefore very different from that of Anno 1800 because the Assassin's Creed Syndicate team actually made trips to London to feel the atmosphere of the city. They say that uh, uh, explicitly. Um, It's very clear here that you could say that atmosphere doesn't somehow happen by accident or is somehow an unimportant part of development. I think on the contrary, it is the case that atmosphere and the question of what kind of atmosphere a game should have is really at the very beginning of development and shapes the entire further development process. I mean, in the interview that I that I uh, uh, had with uh, Mark Alexis Cote, he talked about a world texture and that the team had to determine at the beginning of development. For example, you take a look at the at the um, artwork book. There are numerous so-called mood slides. They had to determine uh, which uh, what the world texture should be. Uh, and what the atmosphere of the whole game should be. And it's it's encapsulated in these mood slides you can find in the artwork book. And these help to, to give the rest of the team an idea of what atmosphere the game should have and what the whole team should achieve overall. And I think what's also very clear, uh, what became clear to me in the analysis of Assassin's Creed Syndicate was that we have so many different terms uh, to describe atmosphere, for example, uh, mood or ambience or tone, and in my work, therefore, um, I advocate for using atmosphere as kind of an umbrella term, you know, for all these many terms that that we have to describe our atmospheric experience. And I mean, maybe just to add to that, one one other thing that I found really interesting in the analysis of, of Assassin's Creed Syndicate, um, the team around the audio director Lydia Andros picked out some real historical musical pieces for the game, which are then played in the game by, for example, street musicians. Um, one, one of these pieces uh, is, for example, the Christian hymn, Abide With Me, uh, which comes from the 19th century. But, and I think that's very important, what the team did is to write new pieces that pick up on the story of the game, but are set to music. And record it in such a way that most players might not even have noticed that they are not historical pieces at all. So the idea, and I think that's very interesting how they describe it, and uh, I try to, you know, um, show it, show uh, how interesting this whole process is in my analysis. It's very interesting that they try to write new musical pieces that fit perfectly into the atmosphere of the game, giving the impression that they are historical, even though they are not. And I think if you look at the game reviews for Assassin's Creed Syndicate, that they have succeeded with that because, I mean, of course, there is a lot of criticism of the Assassin's Creed typical gameplay loop, which is very samey over the years. But almost everyone loves the Virtual London and its atmosphere. So, yeah, I think all in all, you could say that was also a very fruitful analysis of this game.
0: Yeah, world texture, that's a very strong um, it's a good term actually. And you're definitely right. Yeah, there's mood, tonality, look and feel. Yeah, it helps to to clear the the total picture to use one uh, one term like you just did in your awesome book. Finally, now let's talk about Dishonored. The as you said, this is a, a action adventure or even yeah, a shooter game developed by Arcane Studios. Very, very profound studio, uh, published by Bethesda Softworks. Um, please tell us, Felix, what knowledge or kind of knowledge and insights were you able to to gain here?
1: Yeah, so like you said, that the third uh, game that they took uh, that they looked at, um, and it not really rounds of uh, these three analysis because. Um, could say it opens up a very very special perspective on creating atmospheres due to its setting because Dishonored actually, I mean, what I said before is that all three games uh, are related to uh, a Victorian England setting, but Dishonored actually takes place in a fictional setting, in the city of Dunwall, which is afflicted by a plague that turns people into zombies. And oftentimes um, this game is referred to as steampunk, uh, but I think the more correct term is actually one I found in player comments I analyzed and that is whale punk <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah because I mean if you say steampunk it would uh, it, it should mean that uh, in in the game world everything is powered by steam engines but actually in the world of uh, dishonored everything is powered by the fictional whale oil so that is extracted from you know uh very specific kinds of whales in the game world. So with Dishonored, I was able to um, understand very well how atmospheres bridge, you could say, the gap between fiction and reality. So also Dishonored is set in the fictional Dunwall, players always associate it very strongly with Victorian London in terms of atmosphere. And what I found out is that this is no coincidence uh because I, uh, you know, I take uh, took a closer look at the development process, and it became clear that this honor was initially supposed to be set in London, and the development process only gradually moved in the direction of a fictional city, but you can still feel the influence of London, especially on atmospheric level, at every turn when you move to Dunwall, and for me. Um, you could say that this, this raised the question of uh, of whether there is such a thing as a specific Victorian atmosphere that you can find in all three games and that connects all of these games and even bridges reality and fiction. And so I tried to combine the results of all three analyses um, with Dishonored and uh, I asked myself, so what, what makes up this Victorian atmosphere? And I could say that what was really crucial is the contrast between uh, you could say atmospheric potentials. On the one, on the one hand, we have country life and urbanization. We have poverty and prosperity. We have misery and pomp. We have warmth and coldness. And these are contrasts on an atmospheric level. And also, we have omnipresent influences of the mysterious and the occult. And I think you could say, if you if you merge that all together, you could say this is a very specific Victorian atmosphere. And these basic principles of a Victorian atmosphere work across games and genres, but also beyond the game. So um, I think what was also very noticeable in the analysis uh, of Dishonored and also Assassin's Creed was that uh, many players refer to movies and series as like, for example, Guy Ritchie's Sherlock or Penny Dreadful or Ripper Street for comparison. So... I think what you can say uh, is that atmospheres are a transmedia phenomenon and they are deliberately used by developers to create certain effects or maybe even affects. And I think these three games I looked at can really only be the beginning here in terms of atmospherics research on games. There's still a lot to do.
0: Yeah. Well, although you develop your framework by specifically looking at game atmospheres, you also claim that atmospheres of the past are relevant for the broader field of public history. So please tell our listeners some um, how, how other historical products and practices, like museums, for example, could benefit from your work here.
1: Okay, so of course I'm very much in the field of digital game research. Um, and it, this has always been important uh, uh, to, uh, for my work. But I also always try to remain relevant to public history because I'm uh, an historian by training, right? So what we're seeing in this field at the moment, in the field of public history, or you could say that we, what we have been seeing for years is a very strong orientation towards experience, experience in relation to history. So in other words people increasingly want to perceive the past as an experience, not just learn about the past, but experience the past. Basically, you could say the old dream of the time machine lives on here. So games, as uh, you could say, are pioneers here because they are, you could say, best able to satisfy this feeling of time travel. Feeling of time travel, you know, of course, not saying that you could try and travel but it's a feeling of time travel. So as a historian, I, of course, always have to emphasize that the past has passed and will never be accessible to us again. But, of course, that doesn't change the desire of people to travel there to the past. So at the moment, all of public history has to face the question of, you know, what this orientation towards experience means for us as historians. And I believe that we can learn a lot from games. They show us that atmospheres of the past are crucial, uh, you know, for this feeling of being able to immerse ourselves in the past. And they show us how these atmospheres can be created. So museums, for example, just, you know, to give you an example from the field of public history, which is not games, um, can take a lot away from this for the exhibition design. For example, in terms of how to use lighting or sound design in exhibition spaces, because games show how it's done. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we can also be critical of the fact that games claim to provide direct access to the past. So we can learn a lot from games about how we can, and I think also... Must criticize atmospheric design because history is not simply accessible but oftentimes complicated and full of gaps in our knowledge about it. So, I think it's also important to develop critical faculties, you could say, and to learn how to deal with atmospheres in a mature way. So, for the whole field of public history and for all the different, um, you know, practices you have there, museums, living history, reenactment. I think still that games are the perfect starting point to learn about atmospheres and atmospheres of the past.
0: Mm. Well, in conclusion, I'd like to ask two questions. First, although the book really is quite a chunk, but still my question I think is legit nonetheless. Where did you have to cut back? What did not make it in, although you would have liked to have had it in? And secondly, how did you, How do you currently see the state of digital game research?
1: Okay, so <clears throat> um, regarding your first question. Um, originally, I had planned to have a look at more games. So Anno 1800 was chosen as an object of analysis quite early on because there's just so much source material on the game. But the fact that I would add, you know, Assassin's Creed and Dishonored, that was only decided relatively late in the process. At the beginning, I still thought that I could work on more genres and also more errors, uh, historical errors. In the end then, however, I I realized that um, I would have to work very in-depth in the analysis. So if you take a look at the book right now, uh, each analysis is now about 100 pages long and it quickly became clear to me that I would have to have to cut back there. Uh, so in, in terms of the number of games, but I think it was worth it because although there are now only uh, three games that I look at the analysis chapters are really very detailed. And I think many researchers, you know, but also people who are generally interested in these games can take a lot from it. Um, yeah. and Then uh, to your second question um, uh, on the state of digital game research, uh, my impression is that digital game research is really flourishing at the moment. Uh, there are so many different questions, so many interesting people who are now doing research in the field and so many overlaps with other subjects, you know, for example, history. And the field has probably uh, never been so creative and innovative. Um, But uh, a big, huge, a huge but. Uh, At the same time, digital game research is still not sufficiently institutionalized, especially here in Germany. Um, Many researchers I've worked with in recent years have now left the field um, because they didn't see any prospects for themselves. And I mean, that's also to some degree the case with myself because I'm no longer actively working in research, but in civic education, also focused on games, but still a different field. So I think the research area um, as well as academia as a whole must be very, very careful that not too many people, you you could say migrate to other more promising jobs in the next few years. And then consequently that the diversity in digital game research does flatten out again. So I think there is of course a risk or danger there if you take a look at digital game research right now, but I really hope that this research field will continue to grow because, uh, and I really mean it. Um, I really, really care about it.
0: Yeah. Well, Felix, we've taken a lot of your time, so please tell us what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next?
1: Okay. So like I said, um, I work in civic education now, I work at a federal agency for civic education and there I develop political education formats for target groups that are interested in games. And at the moment, for example, uh, I'm focusing particularly on game developers and I'm working on a training program, a masterclass, you could say, which is aimed directly at game developers. Want to find out what role white right wing extremism plays in games culture and in game communities, and yeah, I'm I'm very very curious to see how this program will go. It's in very early stages, uh, yeah, but will be developed in the next month and then hopefully start next year. And um, regarding your second question uh, of what I will play next. Uh, I think I will probably go straight to the new Star Wars game, Jedi Survivor, uh, which comes out in April. Um, and I I mean, I really, really like the first game and I'm a big fan of Souls-like games. And I think the Star Wars Jedi games are heavily influenced by that. So yeah, I think that will be the next big game I'm taking a look at and I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So two great projects in the near future. I want to thank you for being on the show today and I really enjoyed it. So Felix, take care and goodbye. Goodbye. So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you're an author and or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. See you in a bit.